Fireflies Unite with Kia, your weekly podcast from the perspective of individuals thriving with a mental illness. We are normalizing the conversation about mental health within communities of color to foster mental wellness and empowerment. Welcome to another episode of the Fireflies Unite podcast with me, Kia, where our mission is to bring light into darkness, just like the fireflies, by simply sharing the stories of people of color who live and thrive with a mental illness, and of course, to normalize the mental health conversation. So it's a new Monday, and I'm excited, y'all. It has been a very long week. If you are a faithful listener, then you would have known that we did not have an episode last week. But I needed to take a moment to step away because I have some very exciting news to share with you all. So if you follow me on social media, you might already know what I'm talking about. So last week, I was featured on a billboard in Times Square. Yes, Times Square, New York City. I am a part of a mental health campaign with the Quell Foundation. And each week they highlight a new uh, topic. So one week they may highlight depression. Another week they may highlight bipolar disorder. In my particular week, they were highlighting suicide survivors. And me and my family went up to... I'm originally from New Jersey, so I grew up like 20 to 30 minutes outside of Manhattan. So most of my family is still in New Jersey, pretty much a lot of them. And so we went up, took the train about 25 minutes over to Manhattan to see the billboard. And let me tell y'all, it was just an amazing, amazing experience. And I was just traveling a lot. I had two toddlers with me, uh, my two little cousins that I brought back. Well, they came with me from D.C., so I live in the D.C. area. And so I stayed with family in New Jersey, and then we took the train over to the city. And I was beyond exhausted from that weekend. And so I just couldn't. I had plans on getting the episode out, but I just could not. It was just my body was beyond exhausted. And so I was like, you know what? I'm not going to even put that pressure on myself. People who listen to the podcast know that this podcast has been in existence for almost two years. And I've been very consistent for almost the past two years. You may have, I know last year I've taken like two weeks off when I was uh, in the hospital going through treatment. And then this week I took, I mean, this year I also took two weeks off. But for the most part, you guys know that you get an episode every Monday. Um, But it's also very important that I take care of my mental health and listen to my body. And so that's why you didn't get an episode. I was just in a moment and really, really just making sure that I took time to to process what that meant to be on a billboard in Times Square, a part of a mental health campaign. I'm taking the time to actually enjoy with my family and not putting the pressure on myself like, oh my gosh, I have to get this episode out. And so if you are a faithful listener, um, y'all know I'm always talking about taking care of your mental health. 
And so I cannot encourage y'all to do the same if I'm not practicing what I'm preaching. And so I just needed to take a time to, like I said, process and rest. I have been beyond exhausted. So that's why you all didn't get an episode last week, but we have some new listeners. I see the numbers like, you know, they, they growing a little bit. And so I have to welcome you. If you are new here to this podcast, we are all about talking about all things mental health. I always stress the importance that there is a difference between mental health and mental illness because I really do want to educate people. We all have mental health and we should all do what we need to do to take care of our emotional and mental well-being, just like we all have physical health. And so it's important that we take care of our mental health. And in some cases, we can prevent a mental illness from developing if we take care of our mental health. A mental illness is a a diagnosis that someone receives such as PTSD or major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder or bipolar disorder. Um, um, And they are illnesses that cause significant impairment to a person's ability to be able to function at their maximum capacity. So if you are new, then I believe in being completely transparent. And so my diagnosis is generalized anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder. I am also a suicide survivor. And so for me, what my mental illness, it has showed up in me not being able to work for almost two years and being bedridden and not being able to take care of my hygiene, not eating, isolating. And so that's typically what a mental illness, well, that's what it is, not typically, that's what it is. No matter what the mental illness is, it will cause significant impairment in you um, in, in your ability to be able to function. Um, at your baseline and your baseline can be very different. Um, and so I always like to um, make sure that we don't use the two interchangeably and that we understand that there is a difference. Um, but overall, I really do want us talking about mental health um, and being mentally and emotionally healthy so that in some cases, like I said, we can prevent something from becoming a mental illness if we do our part. Not all the time, but sometimes. And so welcome to the podcast. I'm always looking for ways to improve the podcast. I'm always looking for new guests for people to be on the podcast. And so I just want to thank you for checking us out. And so we are going to get into today's topic because y'all probably like Takiya, just be quiet and let's just get into this episode (laughs) So on today's episode, I am excited because it's a new topic. It's something that we really haven't discussed on the podcast. And so I want to make sure that we cover topics that we may not have discussed. I understand the importance of talking about things that may not be my personal struggle. Because while this podcast was birthed out of a very difficult and dark time in my life, I also understand that there are people who challenges are different than mine, and it's important to bring light to all of those challenges that people face. And so on today's topic, today on today's episode, we are going to talk about addiction. Addiction is not a choice. It is a brain disease. And a lot of times I remember, even in my own ignorance, I didn't think that people could be addicted to marijuana. 
because I'm like, well, it's herb, you know, we'll get into that in today's episode. But just like someone can be addicted to marijuana, they can also be addicted to cocaine. And so in today's episode, I am joined by the amazing Jasmine Carnelius. She is a bison, just like me. If y'all noticed, you know, the last few weeks that we've been having some bison on here. Because, I mean, I went to the best HBCU ever. So, uh, Howard University. So, I am joined by Jasmine, and she is a licensed marriage and family therapist. And she really breaks down what a substance use disorder is. She talks about um, co-occurring disorders. And I thought... And I really believe that it's important that we talk about this topic so that people can understand that addiction is truly not a choice. It is truly a brain disease and people do struggle. It is very hard to um, become clean from any substances when your body has been so dependent upon it. And so let's get into this episode. Welcome, Jasmine, to the Fireflies Unite podcast. I am like super, super excited to have this conversation because it's not one that I've actually had on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So especially when it comes to, well, when it comes to substance use. And I know that like a lot of times people, they, I know it's very separated depending on where you live. They'll do like mental health and substance use is two separate things, but they do correlate. So before we get into all that, I'm just yapping off at the mouse. First, I should be like, well, how are you, Jasmine? And thank you for joining me. <laughs> thank you for having me. I'm very excited um, to be speaking with you. And you're right. Um, a lot of times they do go uh, separated and people don't really see the connection. And I think it's very important that we start to see the connection because quite often you have to address both issues. You can't just address one and think the other one will go away. So I'm really happy to be here uh, on this podcast and being able to share some information. Yes, yes. Um, I, of course, uh, so I don't, uh, my personal experience isn't living with a substance use disorder, but I do have firsthand experience as with my parents. So Mm -hmm. my dad struggled with drug addiction my entire life for as long as I can remember. Um, And my mom struggled with um, alcohol. So can you just speak about like, why do you think there is a stigma on addiction and why So why don't people see it as a disease opposed to someone just making a bad choice? Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so what I will say is that um, addiction in and of itself is very, um, I guess I'll say segregated for lack of a better phrase, but there are certain types of drugs and substances that you can get away with using more than others and people will look at you in a different way. So something like alcohol, because it's very um, common and very uh, accessible to mostly everybody, you can walk into CVS, you can go to the grocery store, anywhere and get alcohol uh, versus the person that uses meth. The stigma attached to those specific people will be a little bit different. Um, But I think that 
generally speaking, um, the the desire to use a substance really does start out as a choice. Um, so maybe, for example, it'll be, you know, something happened to me, whether it's trauma or just a general disappointment in life, and I'm just, you know, I want to feel better. So I decide I'm going to use this, right? But then after that, it's no longer your choice because substances are so powerful that they kind of take over your brain. So at that point, you're no longer making the decision. And I think people get stuck in that idea of like, you made the choice to use crack or cocaine or whatever the case may be. And it's like, sure, people may try it one time. They made the decision to try it one time. But once your brain and your body becomes um, dependent on that, it's very, very hard to stop. Our brains are very powerful. I don't think that people realize how powerful they are and how we can be, you know, coerced by our own brains to go back to something that causes us pain over and over and over again. Yeah, that's a great point because I often like to tell people when they'll say something like, well, why can't they just stop um, drinking or using drugs? And I would tell them, I say, well, you know, we all have our vices. And sometimes I say your vice may not be substance use, but you may be overeating. And Mm -hmm. while, yeah, we all need to eat to survive. But then when you get to the point where like you're binge eating um, because, Mm -hmm. you know, something happened. So we all have our things. But like you said, there are some things that are just socially um, accepted. And also because since we have easily, um, easy access to it, it's accepted for us to have these things, but people don't realize how dependent or how easy it is to become dependent on something when, like you said, it start off initially as a choice as that one time. But then after that, it's like every time something happens now, I'm so dependent on it and I need this to cope. Or maybe Nothing happened, but I just got to the point that I'm um, so dependent on it and I feel like everything is good and I'm using this substance because I'm happy. I'm using it because I'm depressed. I'm using it because I'm disappointed. It just gets to the point where it's a way of life, right? Right. And so a lot of times I'll ask my clients, you know, when do you find yourself using um, meth? So to be clear, many of my clients, the majority of them um, use meth. There are some people who use heroin and some people that use alcohol right now. Um, but generally speaking, my my job right now is specifically with meth addicts. Um, but what I'm looking for when I ask those questions is, are you using it as, um, you know, a coping mechanism to deal with something negative? Or is it used in a positive way as in, oh, I just got a new job. I'm going to go use meth. Oh, I'm so happy. Oh, this good thing happened because when you're using it for both of those things, it can make it a little bit more difficult because it's become so generalized in your life as opposed to I'm um, using it to cope with something negative that happened to me. Then we can work on, you know, coping, you know, healthier coping skills for dealing with depression or anxiety or stress management. But if you're using it as a celebratory tactic, now we're kind of having to come at it from a different angle as well. Um, And I think that, you know, 
it it becomes this sort of like security blanket. So many clients that I work with, they have some sort of trauma in their life, right? And so the way that our brains work is that we make connections. So I feel afraid, I feel sad, I feel scared, I feel angry, but I know that when I use this thing, I feel nothing. Or I maybe feel better at best, you know? Um, and so my brain makes this connection. So whenever I feel that emotion, regardless of the circumstance causing the emotion, I'm going to automatically go to my security blanket. And for some people that's alcohol, for some people that is food, for some people that is crack cocaine. Um, some people with cigarettes, I think sometimes we overlook uh, nicotine as a substance mm -hmm. as well. Um, of course, the immediate effects of certain substances aren't as apparent, but they still can cause you harm in the long run. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, because we we underestimate the power of our brains in the I don't want to get too like biological, but like the neurons and the connections mm -hmm. and the synapses and all of those things. Um, and so quite often addiction is categorized as a um, uh, brain disease and also something that is uh, physical addiction as well, because there are some substances where, you know, people can really want to stop using them and they stop and then their body kind of goes into shock even though they have no desire to use it anymore but their body is like i need this thing um and mm -hmm. so when you have things like alcohol things like heroin um things like benzos which are pills so you're talking about your xanax your ativan and things like that those types of addictions um are very hard to kick because not only is it something that is in your brain and dealing with the chemicals in your brain, it's also affecting your body and your body will go into shock. So when you have somebody detoxing from alcohol, they'll tell you, you know, maybe you want to consider medical detox because you could die from the physical effects of withdrawing versus something like a heroin or a marijuana. You're not going to die. It's going to be very uncomfortable though. But even those things play also a major role in the continuation of addiction and some people's inability to stop long-term because it is a very painful and uncomfortable process. Wow. I'm so glad you brought that up as a point because I remember as a child, I used to be very upset with my father because I felt like he chose drugs over me. And he was constantly in and out of jail. Um, he got to the point where it was a bad thing for him because he was not only using the drugs, he was also selling drugs. Mm -hmm. So I just remember always feeling like he keep, you know, I was like, as a child, I'm like, you keep saying that you're going to do good and you're not going to go to jail anymore. But why you like, but why? It wasn't until I was taking medication for my depression one time. And I was like, this was like some a few years ago. And I was like, oh, I feel good. I feel good. I don't need this medication anymore. And I stopped mm -hmm. taking it and I wasn't weaned off. And my body had went through a terrible withdrawal. Like I got body chills. I almost felt like I had the flu. I was shaking. I couldn't get out of bed. It was a terrible withdrawal. And that experience 
help me to be more compassionate for my father. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, if it's like this for me off of um, a psychotropic medication, I can only imagine what it's like for people who struggle with like hardcore substances. Right. And so I think also a lot of people don't really realize that the physical addiction, sometimes that can also happen without even your knowledge. So, you know, I use the example of people who have surgery in the hospital, right? And maybe, you know, somebody has a C-section or some kind of major surgery where they get prescribed, let's say, Vicodin. Um, And so they're used to taking this thing, which is, you know, take it three times a day for the next 10 days, right? So Vicodin is an opiate. Those are very, very strong. Now, they're taking it as prescribed. They're not abusing it or anything like that. But when they stop, they will have those withdrawal symptoms because their body has become used to it. But they're not considered the typical addict because the psychological piece is not there. Like they're like, oh, yeah, my doctor said I don't have to take this anymore. I'm good. I'm fine. I don't want to take it anymore. But then the body still reacts. And so when you're looking at addiction, you know, the clinical term of addiction and how that looks for a lot of people in society today, you're looking at both of those pieces put together. And I think that, you know, sometimes people will say, I don't have a problem. I can stop whenever I want or I can do this. And what they don't really understand is what defines addiction. Um, because, you know, there's people, and I think this is a very important distinction. So there are people who will come home every day after work and drink a glass of wine. They have one glass of wine a night. That's it. They go to work the next day. They do whatever they need to do. Nothing ever happens to them, right? And then there are other people who start with one glass of wine. By the end of the week, they're up to 15 glasses of wine and they miss work. So when it comes to being diagnosed with a substance use disorder, there are certain you know, points that have to be checked off in order to get the diagnosis. And I think sometimes because people aren't fully aware of what those markers are, then they may have, you know, a mild addiction, something that would be categorized as mild, and they kind of overlook it because they're not really familiar with the diagnostic criteria. Um, Mm -hmm. But more people probably would fall into the category of a substance use disorder than, than they would think. Yeah, it's you you brought up so many great points. And I what I heard was um it when it is very similar to someone who lives with a mental health condition, it when it causes significant impairment mm-hmm. and it impacts your ability to function, mm-hmm. that's when it would be considered an addiction, right? Yeah. So um before, I don't know if you're familiar with the DSM or the diagnostic. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, they just put out a new one maybe maybe like four years ago. So what they did, um, addiction used to be under substance abuse and substance dependence. So they were two separate things. Um, abuse would be something as simple as I got prescribed the Xanax. I'm supposed to take one every six hours as needed, but sometimes I take two. So basically, I'm not using it the way it's prescribed, right? So that would be abuse. Dependence is what is 
is typically classified as addiction. So now what they've done is combine those two categories and people will get a substance use disorder diagnosis, but it can be mild, moderate, or severe. Um, mm. So when we're talking to somebody that may or may not have a substance use disorder, I'm going to ask them, the first thing I'm going to say is, have you used this substance for um, longer periods of time than you intended? Um, because that is, you know, pretty significant in that, yeah, I said I was going to, you know, just have one glass a week, but, you know, I, I have to have like 10. So it's like, okay, you're using more than you want it for longer periods of time than you intended. Um, do you feel like you need more of the substance in order to get the same effect? That is what we call tolerance. And that's the physical aspect of addiction because mm -hmm. your body becomes accustomed to it. So you need more to get the same effect. Um, then we're talking about withdrawal. So what happens when you stop using this substance? Do you become irritable? Do you feel like you have the flu? Which for people that use opiates, that's probably going to be their experience, a very severe case of the flu. Then we're asking, um, you know, do you feel like you've been unable to fulfill major role obligations? So home obligations, work obligations, have you given up social activities? Um, is your is your substance use making symptoms of a mental health issue or a physical issue worse and yet you still continue to use? So it's like, oh, my doctor told me, I hear this a lot too, my doctor told me I can't really drink anymore because my liver is enlarged and it's probably not a good thing, but I had a 12-pack last night. So it's like you know that you shouldn't do it, but you do it anyway. So there's I think there are a total of 11 criteria. Um, you only need two to get a substance use disorder diagnosis. And the more that you check off, that's when it goes from mild, moderate to severe. Right, right. And, you know, like you said, when it becomes something that interferes with your ability to function in various areas, you know, it can be perhaps you're able to go to work and work your 40-hour work week but then all your home relationships are destroyed because maybe you've stolen from somebody to get money for your drugs. Um, maybe you've lied to people or, you know, let people down in various ways. And so, yeah, you're still able to function at work, but your interpersonal relationships are suffering. So that would be, yeah, we're going to check. We're going to check off on that criteria because it has impeded on your ability to function interpersonally. That's good, Jasmine, because I've heard someone say like, well, I go I go to work and I'm not like standing on the corner like they have this stigma as to what someone with um, a substance use order will look like maybe on the corner corner nodding off can barely stand. But you feel like because you're functional that you're mm -hmm. fine when it's like. Mm, no, that's not necessarily true. Maybe we should explore that more because, and right. I would say like, no. And I, you know, told my relative, I said, you know, I actually think, you know, we should talk about this more. And the more we started talking about it, they were like, wow, I, I, I think you're right. I think I do have, I think I do have a, an issue. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing is people don't, they don't often make that connection. And I also want you to speak to um, co-occurring. Um, and I, I, I think I 
didn't even mention this. I probably should have asked you to mention it. But for people who are listening and they don't know what the DSM-5 is, I just say the Bible of mental health disorders. That's where they go to get the <laughs> disorders. I'm like, I'm like, that's a, a book of billing codes because they need to know how to bill your insurance company. Right, but right. it's like, uh, but yes, essentially it's the Bible where, you know, mental health professionals go to get the diagnosis. Um, and, but and specifically like for co-occurring people who live with substance use disorders, but also a mental health condition. So mm-hmm. What what do you see? Is it usually like, okay, someone had a substance use disorder first and then they developed a mental health condition or vice versa? A lot of times people don't people don't even realize that it's a thing to have both. Like people who may have never struggled with the substance use or maybe they don't live with the mental health diagnosis. They don't realize that those two things can actually exist at the same time. Yes. And, you know, it really does depend on the person, um, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, Sometimes I have clients and I say, you know what, your mental health supersedes your substance use disorder um, because it is a symptom of your mental health. Or I'll tell clients that are coming in for mental health treatment, I think that your addiction uh, supersedes your mental health. And so what I do want to say, though, about addiction is regardless of which came first, addiction is um, a primary condition. So basically what that means is that, say, for instance, you have someone who's struggling with depression and they say, you know what, I just I just want to feel better. Like, I don't want to feel anything. So maybe I will start to drink Um, or maybe I'll use a stimulant. Let's just go with stimulants because. You don't want to be depressed, so why would you drink alcohol? So let's say you use meth, right, to to help manage your symptoms of depression. There will come a point where even if you get your depression to a manageable place and you have your coping skills and your symptoms have decreased, you're still going to use meth. So it kind of takes a life of its own. And I think that's what some people don't fully understand about addiction as well, is that they think, oh, you know, let me just address this mental health issue and my addiction will go away. And that is not how it works at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But with regard to co-occurring, quite often there are people who, um, at least in my line or my work, will come in with a trauma usually a sexual trauma um and they kind of so they're already dealing with the mental health piece right there and you know as they grow up they it starts to affect their self-esteem they start to experience anxiety in certain areas of life and they just say one day like oh maybe i fell in with the wrong crowd or you know i just can't deal with this anymore i'm going to try this and that can be how it starts Um, Or sometimes when you're dealing with harder substances like a meth, you can actually go into um, a state of psychosis. Um, Mm. Can you, uh, I didn't mean to stop you, but I was like, I got to stop her. I know what psychosis is, but for someone listening who doesn't understand what psychosis is, can you explain that? Yes. So um, psychosis would be just a severe break from reality. So there's different states of being when it comes to substances. So you could be, you know, kind of like delirious and that can just be like, Oh, I didn't sleep for a few days. I'm so tired. 
what day is today? So that will be considered delirious. It can affect anybody, right? Um, psychosis would be, oh my God, the FBI is after me. Like, I just know that I'm on this call with Takia and she's recording me and um, they're going to come knock on my door. Every, like, just very extreme paranoia. Like, mm -hmm. nothing really makes sense. And so quite often when you're dealing with those harder drugs, um, or when you're contending with substance abuse and mental illness, when they kind of collide, the world cross and things change, things become different. So people that are experiencing psychosis, it doesn't mean that they're going to be that way forever. Um, but it definitely is cause for concern in, a, in their, you know, their life. Um, but I've also had clients who were diagnosed with, um, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. So those would be considered more severe and persistent mental illnesses. Quite often, the mental illness came first. So they they experienced the symptoms and they just couldn't take it. And then they started using. Sometimes when you're dealing with severe and persistent mental illness, um, because there's still stigma surrounding that even, I think in our society, um, we're just kind of starting to accept people going to therapy and talking about therapy, but there's still a stigma on what you're dealing with in therapy. So depression is all the rage or anxiety and things like that. But when you're talking about schizophrenia, people have mm -hmm. um, notions about somebody with that um, mental illness or when you're talking about bipolar disorder or when you're talking about the personality disorders, like people still kind of shun those groups of people. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my homeless, um, I'm sorry, a lot of my clients would become homeless maybe because they have schizophrenia and they become so paranoid. They're like, I can't stay in this house. Like, I got to get away. Um, or maybe the family shuns them or something. So they end up on the streets. Then they're on the streets and you have to survive, right? I know I live in California. It's pretty warm outside right now. But in the evening, it gets cool. So if I'm homeless and it's 40 degrees at night, I need something to, like, take my mind off the fact that I'm outside and it's 40 degrees. So I'm going to use meth or I'm going to use marijuana or I'm going to drink, but something to help me cope with the situation that I'm in. And so that's a situation where the mental illness comes first. Sometimes people drink, right? Like you were talking about your dad. Um, so perhaps everything was fine and it just kind of took on a life of its own. And now you have all these interpersonal relationship issues, or maybe he lost his job, you know, or, you know, like you said, the legal issues. And so now that rolls over into feeling depressed. So that would be a situation where the substance abuse came first and it led to the mental health issue. But I really, really, really want to reiterate that when you're dealing with something that's co-occurring, you have to address both issues because just um, addressing one won't make the other go away. So yes, they occur at the same time, but they also require their own types of treatment. So for me, a lot of my clients, um, so specifically I work with um, people who are women who are pregnant and postpartum um, who have had their children removed for substance abuse, right? And I'm dealing with 
all kinds of mental health issues, PTSD, depression, sometimes bipolar disorder, sometimes personality disorders. My job is to address the substance abuse, um, but that doesn't mean that I'm completely ignoring the mental illness piece. So I'll say, you know, all right, so what can you do instead of drink today, right? That's a fair question to ask. But when I have a client who has severe depression and they feel like they want to kill themselves, I also have to address that. Like, what are you going to do to not kill yourself? As much as I'm asking, what are you going to do to stay sober? So I think when it comes to treatment and just the family understanding, they have to know that the two things can coexist simultaneously and they both have to be addressed. Yes. I know I said a lot. No, but you are, I mean, that's why they pay the big bucks, right? So, <laughs> so no, but you, you said a lot because it's like, you can't necessarily say which one came first, whether it was the mental uh, illness or the substance use, because it really, like you said, it depends on the person. Sometimes it could be the mental illness that leads to the substance use, or sometimes it could be substance use that leads to the mental illness. It really depends. But and really talking about how treatment plays a role in addressing both and not just one. So mm-hmm. that is like, it's so important. And I also want you to speak to um, marijuana. I, okay. So I was a person where I actually, um, no, I haven't smoked marijuana, but I used to think that people couldn't become addicted to marijuana. I'm like, I mean, no, you can't really be addicted to marijuana, but Of course, once I started going through some of my mental health trainings and learning a lot more, I'm like, well, actually, people can be um, addicted to marijuana, even though people could say it's a herb, it's from the earth, God put this here, whatever we want to tell ourselves. But just like we can become addicted to food, it's still a a herb, but people still use it and it can be um, it could be. Uh, you know, addicting for some people. And while, yes, it is accepted, especially I know you're in California, so people a lot of times use it for recreational purposes. But I really wanted you to speak to, like, how do someone know if they're using it for, like, okay, I'm just using this for recreational reasons, like, I mm-hmm. guess, drinking. But um, now it's actually to the point where I'm becoming addicted to it. And I know marijuana could be one of those iffy ones. Right. So... I'm really glad that you brought that up, um, especially for us clinicians in California and Colorado. I, well, I don't mean, I don't personally know anyone from Colorado, but I would imagine that we're kind of going through the same things where you do have, that's usually the, the first thing that comes out of people's mouths is that it's natural. Um, so like when I'm working with my clients, my program is um, abstinence-based, so you cannot use anything. And they say, well, how come I can't smoke weed? Like, it's natural. I say, you know, so is the peyote plant um, in South America, but it will get you high. And that is also natural. So regardless of its natural state or not, it is a mood-altering substance. And basically what that means is that the receptors in your brain that are affected by whatever you choose to, you know, whatever substance you're choosing, um, you get some some impact from it. So it's not like you're taking Tylenol and your headache goes away, but your mood stays the same. 
when people drink coffee, when people smoke weed, when people drink alcohol, when people use meth, their mood changes, hence the phrase mood-altering substance, right? And so it does impair you. I have used marijuana in my college days. I'll just self-disclose. Not often, but I have done it. Um, you can't really, can't really drive. Sometimes it's difficult to walk. Sometimes it's difficult to shift focus. You know, sometimes you're like hyper-focused on one thing. So it is affecting you. And so mm-hmm. for me, um, you know, I, I tell people marijuana is something that is accepted. It is natural, but it alters your frame of thinking. It alters your behavior just as much as nicotine, just as much Mm -hmm. as caffeine, right? Those are all socially acceptable. No one's going to be like, you have a problem. You drink coffee five times a day. You should probably go to treatment. No one's going to say that, but it does affect you. And once you stop using that substance, you will have symptoms of withdrawal. Of course, the symptoms of marijuana aren't going to be as drastic as alcohol or some sort of opiate, but you're talking about um, lethargy, irritability, um, moodiness, things like that. So there is some withdrawal there. I tell people, my clients specifically, can you tell me why you smoke marijuana? Can you tell me how often you smoke marijuana? Because if you're telling me, sometimes I feel sad and, you know, I just smoke to chill out. I'm like, oh, okay. So you're using it as a coping mechanism, probably something we should address. Um, or, you know, sometimes if I ask people, did you smoke this morning before you went to work? Yeah. Well, why? Did you know that you could be drug tested at work? Yeah. Well, you, you did it anyway. So we, now we're getting into that addiction territory because if I'm smoking before I go to work, knowing that it's going to affect me on my commute to work or in my ability to function at work and I'm doing it, I don't think that's something you would, I don't think that's a situation you'd willingly put yourself in. But I think people are so quick to, I think we like to retain the idea of what the typical addict might look like that because we are not that way, we kind of justify it. Um, so, you know, like you were saying, people say like, oh, I can still go to work. But also, as soon as you get home, you're smoking five joints in a night, you know, or you're yeah, smoking yeah. in order to go to sleep. Or, you know, you're so stressed out that as soon as you get home, you're smoking weed to chill out. That's abuse, right? Um, yeah. But I think because marijuana is so socially acceptable and again the long-term effects on your lungs of you know when people think about cigarettes they're going to say oh my god they're probably going to think cancer first right you're talking about lungs that probably are black and poorly functioning contrary to popular belief marijuana also affects your lungs it may not have the same uh, rate of effective of affecting your body um so you may not see the damage as quickly but you're inhaling smoke so yes there is going to be some effect yes when you stop smoking marijuana there will be some withdrawal and i think getting people to kind of buy into that is what's going to be the most important in helping people understand that you can actually be addicted to it 
because I think it's been used recreationally for so long and people can just stop whenever they want. Like when you talk about like Woodstock in the hippie days, they're like, yeah, I went to this concert and I smoked that weekend, but I haven't touched it in 10 years. Okay, but we're different now. And there are people who literally, as soon as they get home, they've been thinking about it all day. They have to have it and they have to do it before they go to sleep and they have to do it before they go to work. But I think we have to, as mental health professionals and advocates, start to educate people um, on marijuana specifically in order to get that buy-in for them to realize that it is just as addicting as anything else. Yes, yes, yes. Like, you made so many great points and just, like, hit it right on the nose. Like, because I used to think that even though it wasn't, like, my struggle, but I'm thinking, like, well, it's the herb, you know. People can't really be addicted to it. And I may have said it when I first started the podcast. Um, But I I didn't really, but like I said, once I started to educate myself and, started learning more just about mental health and substance use disorders. And I was just like, wait, why wouldn't that be the case? Um, like you said, if somebody is feeling like they can't live without it, and may they, like you said, people may think like, oh, I can stop anytime I want to. But mm-hmm. if you're thinking, if you think that, but yet you still continue to use, it's like, okay, that actually may be an issue. Mm-hmm. So like just thank you for for breaking that down and sharing that because i know that like someone needs to someone needs to hear that and really i think just talking about like of course therapy is one of them but like just like treatment options for people who are struggling with a substance use disorder or it's co-occurring i know therapy is one and i know like in the state of maryland they're doing something that um, I know other states are doing too, but like as a form of treatment, I know people have mixed reviews about it, but like harm reduction. So, um, yes, there are a lot of mixed reviews about it. I think um, the stance on that is that when you're talking about addiction, specifically um, IV drug users, Again, because perhaps I made this decision to try heroin once, right? Like, oh, my friends are doing it, but now I can't stop. And so when there's something that you can't stop doing, um, and sometimes people continue to use whatever substance just to avoid the withdrawal because the withdrawal is so bad that they're like, you know what, I have to have a drink or I have to do this. So when I'm so desperate to get this thing, I'll do whatever it takes. I find a needle on the ground, I share a needle with my friend, and that's kind of where the harm reduction um, idea came into play because it's like, yeah, at some point we're going to address the addiction piece, but if you're going to do it, please be safe because now you're dealing with hepatitis C. So the person may be clean from substances, but now they have this other issue that they have to deal with. But when you're working from a harm reduction model, it's like, okay, let's kind of control for those extra things and see if we can help you be as safe as possible and then work on you stopping entirely. Um, So it it does get mixed reviews. I know my program is not harm reduction. We're complete abstinence. Um, 
But for treatment, there is a lot of different things. There's harm reduction. Um, there's methadone, which also has mixed reviews. Um, there's medication-assisted treatment programs. Um, there's naltrexone and naloxone for people that are struggling with alcohol addiction. Um, Vivitrol shots, which are intramuscular shots. Um, I think they give them once a month. So they're extended release. Um, and so it kind of like keeps the withdrawal symptoms at bay um, and like calms the cravings for the substance. But that's an option. There's also, um, like you said, therapy would be something that you could find in both residential treatment and outpatient treatment. I think now I would say probably in the last maybe 15, 20 years, people are starting to realize that you have to have therapy, right, instead of or in addition to um, the substance, like the relapse prevention piece. Because a lot of times if you talk to people from the 70s and the 80s who may have gone through treatment, they weren't getting mental health treatment. They were getting relapse prevention, stop using, drugs are bad, this is what happens, but they weren't addressing the mental health part. So even for people who approach their recovery from a medication um, assisted treatment model or harm reduction model or outpatient or residential, you do also want to get that therapy piece because, again, when you're talking about co-occurring things, that therapy is going to be what saves mm -hmm. you because, yeah, I can stop, but I also still feel like crap, and I feel sad, and that makes me want to use. So how can you help me with that piece as well? Mm. Yeah, that's, well, so true, because that way it's more of a holistic approach mm -hmm. for treatment than just targeting one particular um, issue. Mm -hmm. And for... Just to explain it, and I should have mentioned, I should have said something before, but can you just like very briefly explain for someone who may not know what harm reduction is to just kind of explain what it is? Yeah, so um, I'll use it from the standpoint of someone who's an IV drug user. So you can go to different locations. Um, sometimes they have it like um, like a truck like a, a mobile truck um, mm -hmm. or some clinics will also do it, but you can get clean needles. Um, and so basically harm reduction is we're going to reduce the amount of harm that you're going to do because you're going to use the substance anyway, but instead of using a dirty needle um, or uh, use one from your friend, even though you trust your friend, we're going to reduce the harm that can come with that and give you something clean. That would probably be the the most simple way of doing that. So it's like we're not necessarily saying you can't use, although we encourage you not to, but if you're going to, here's a safer way to do it. Yeah, that's, I mean, I know a lot of people um, or a lot of, like, in Maryland, like I said, there are so many people who are using it and they've had conferences on it. And people are finding, people find that it's actually very beneficial. And sometimes you could, I, like in some of the trainings that I take, you'll see like tension coming up when 
someone is saying like, well, they've been um, in recovery for so many years and they did it by being asked. And then another person will say, well, I did harm reduction. And there's even like this stigma or like sometimes people who um, abstinence has worked for them. They kind of sometimes look down on people who've used, who's done harm reduction as an approach. But sometimes as with anything, everybody is different. So people will say, oh yeah, like I wanted to lose weight. So I just woke up one day and decided like I was going to change my life. Great. Mm -hmm. That is not my story. What was my story was maybe the doctor telling me like, great, you need to get your life. Otherwise bad things will happen, you know, or it could have been many different things, but the point is I got to where I needed to be. So how Mm -hmm. you get there is not as important as getting there. So if it takes you 15 tries to go cold turkey, as they call it, um, fine. If it takes you 10 tries to do harm reduction, fine. Because at the end of the day, your goal is to be sober um, and not to have to use substances to deal with whatever. Um, So that's the goal, right? It doesn't really matter how I got there, but that cold turkey piece, that's what you're going to get with the old school treatment approaches because that is a lot of what it was. They weren't really doing harm reduction 30 years ago. Um, It was like, no, you're coming to treatment. You're on lockdown. No, no, no. And then you deal. And some people, again, some people can do that. Not everybody can. um, But that doesn't, to me, that doesn't mean anything because, again, the goal is to be clean. However you get there, though, it's your prerogative, whatever works best for you. But, yes, there are a lot of people that um, kind of look down on the harm reduction model because they think that it continues to encourage uh, substance use. But I want to like go back also to what you said in the beginning about how even with your dad, when he would say like, oh, I'm not going to drink anymore and I'm not going to do this anymore. And it made you feel some type of way as his child. If you can't get clean for your children, what are you going to get clean for? So when you're talking about harm reduction, it's like, again, I can't just go cold turkey. Maybe there's somebody or something in my life that I should want to be clean for, but it's not that easy all the time. So I'm just going to wean myself off of it. So like when you're taking medication, right, when you're taking a psychotropic medication um, and you're like, you know what, I think I feel okay. Your doctor's not going to say, okay, well, just stop taking it. No. I would question your doctor if they did that. What they're going to say is like, all right, we're going to reduce your dose. So instead of taking three a day, go down to two a day and see how you feel. And you do that for a little bit. And then they say, okay, go down to one a day and see how you feel. Or they might, you know, wean you from 50 milligrams to 30 milligrams and just gradually go down like that. And that's essentially kind of harm reduction. Like, yeah, we're cutting you down or we're trying to reduce harm because we know you're going to do it anyway. But hopefully you get to the point where you will just stop. Yeah. I mean, and some people, was, um, thank you for breaking that down. But it is important that people understand that and you see what works best for you or your loved one. And really just to... I think to help with just being supportive. Um, And the last thing I wanted to ask you is like, 
how do you support um, a loved one who is struggling with addiction? Um, I think that there's many ways to support that person. Um, One of those things mainly is going to be educating yourself. So that could just be, you know, you reading books and materials regarding addiction, um, regarding the specific type of addiction, or it can be you going to a support group. Um, I know that there is Al-Anon, which is um, Alcoholics Anonymous for family and friends of alcoholics, but you can... You can be anybody and go to Al-Anon, even if the person is not contending with alcohol use. Um, But that's going to be very important. And then also um, knowing, I think, and understanding, trying to really wrap your head around this idea that they are not in control. Mm -hmm. They're not. And the more that you can understand that, like they, they hope to be in control, Um, And maybe sometimes it looks like they're in control, but they're really not because of the way that addiction works. So when you're able to understand that, you're able to understand what it looks like for withdrawal for someone with alcohol use um, disorder or for cannabis use disorder or for stimulant use disorder and how those things will look different, how it really has nothing to do with you, how you can't give someone an ultimatum either because sometimes we use fear as a tactic to get our loved ones to change. And then we get upset when they can't change. Um, But being there for that person, letting them know that you don't condemn them, you don't judge them. um, I think that is very, very helpful because even as a therapist, sometimes my clients will say, sometimes they don't even listen to what I say. Sometimes they just say, thank you for treating me like a human being and really listening to me. And I feel like you actually care. And that is very, very helpful when you're dealing with addiction because of the stigma attached to it. Oh, like you're lazy or you're weak and how come you can't just stop and blah, blah, blah. But again, psychoeducating yourself so that you can approach your loved one with compassion, letting them know, you know, yes, some bad things have happened as a result of this addiction, but I'm here with you. I'm here to support you. And also knowing that it may not be a one-time thing. So that's also something I really want people to like take with them as they're supporting their loved ones. You pour your heart and compassion and soul into supporting them and they're clean for a month and then they relapse. So you can't, to a certain degree, um, you can't give up on them. You still have to let them know, you know, I'm here I'm supporting you. What do you need? You also have to enforce boundaries, though, um, because I think sometimes the support gets confused with enabling. Mm. It's a very fine line. So, yes, I'm going to support you. I will drive you to your meetings. Um, But what I'm not going to do is commiserate with you. And I'm not going to drive you to your dealer. And, you know, maybe I take your phone, right? Or maybe I empty out your phone numbers. You can be mad about it, but I support you. That's my way of supporting you. I'm not going to enable you and say, oh, here, you can have your phone back. So setting healthy boundaries, which I think will come from psychoeducation. That's the most important piece. Yes, yes, yes. Jasmine, this conversation has been just 
so refreshing to be able to talk about this on the podcast because it's not a topic I haven't talked about um, addiction. So just thank you for providing a new and different perspective and bringing your knowledge and expertise to to letting people know that addiction is truly it's it may start off as a choice, but it is a brain disease and to be more compassionate for people who struggle with substance use disorders. I'm so glad that I was able to share. Hopefully um, somebody learned something. I learned something every time I talk about it. Um, And also the field is changing. We're finding new things every day. Um, Treatment options are changing. Like it's a, it's not anything that's stagnant. It's ever going. And so um, I'm just happy I was able to share the knowledge that I do have. And hopefully I can learn more. So what did you all think about that interview with Jasmine? Wasn't she great? Like, I just was really happy to have that conversation with her because as you've heard me say in the interview that I really struggled with forgiving my father for a long time because I'm like, he keeps making these empty promises by him. I don't exactly know what substances my father was addicted to, but like, I do remember as a child seeing bottles of drugs um, on the bed or like um, in my parents' room. I do vividly remember walking in my parents' room and seeing like a bag full of drugs um, and they were in like little tubes. And I will never forget that. And I and I remember at that time, I don't know if I realized what it was, if I knew it was drugs, but I just knew I didn't feel right that I walked in on that. Um, and so I just remember images of my father not being able to um, stay awake and kind of nodding off and just really being embarrassed as a child. But as I became older and educated on what addiction is, And understanding that it is a disease, I became so much more compassionate for my father and understanding um, that he really didn't choose this. What may have started as what did start off as a choice initially, it no longer was a choice. And so I really want to thank Jasmine for breaking that down. And so let's bring in the fireflies, because for today's self-care segment. It is very simple. I want us to just really think about what is something that we struggle with. It doesn't necessarily have to be a substance use disorder, but what is something that we have a very hard time stopping and we wholeheartedly want to stop, but we just feel like we can't. We feel like we're stuck. We feel like this thing will have us down for the rest of our life. It could be anything from guilt. It could be anything from binge eating. Um, it, it could be anything from a um, toxic relationship or forgiveness. What is that? What is something that you have found that it is very hard for you to stop? And I want us to think about that for a moment because, and think about if it's hard for you to stop something such as um, you have a hard time forgiving yourself or forgiving other people or letting go of a toxic relationship. And that's not even a substance use. Imagine 
if you are taking a substance that is mind altering and your body becomes so dependent on it and you get sick when you are when your body is withdrawing from it. If it's like that for a person who whose brain and body has become so dependent on a substance use on a particular substance. And for you, you're having a hard time with forgiveness and you say, I really want to forgive myself or I really want to forgive that person. Or maybe it's, I really want to lose weight, but I find that I'm really struggling. I have a hard time with uh, creating um, healthier eating habits, really asking yourself, why is it so hard for you to do that? And, and the only reason why I, I bring this up in terms of for the self-care segment, because I want to help us to have um, more compassion for people who struggle with substance use disorders. And so if you have a hard time just making a better choice, if you have a hard time just being able to think differently, imagine that times a thousand with, with, a, with a substance use. And so I really just want to encourage us to be more compassionate if you have a family member or a friend um, and someone that you know, and really understanding the importance behind why therapy is so important. You know, oftentimes we talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is also known as talk therapy. And the thing about it is, is that it helps you want to change your, your perspective and the way you look at things. Because well, the thought behind it is that if we change the way we look at something, we can begin to be change our behaviors. And so I want to encourage you, no matter what that thing is for you, it may be a substance use, it may not. But really asking yourself, write down, why can I change this thought of, that I have about myself or something or someone? Or why can I change this behavior? And then what are the steps that I can take to actually do something about it. And the first step may be therapy. The first step may be speaking positive affirmations over your life every single day. The thought may be starting to be more open and honest with yourself and other people, whatever it is for you. So that's what I want to encourage you for this week's self-care segment. So for this week's therapist shout out, we are going Straight over to Cali, my favorite place. And and I can't say the world because I haven't been all over the world, but at least in the United States, L.A., California is definitely my favorite place. So we are having a therapist uh, shout out and he is based in Los Angeles, California. And how ironic, because Jasmine is also based in um, Los Angeles, California. Um, But his name is Melvin Moore. And he is a therapist. Like I said, he's based in Los Angeles, California. Melvin, he specializes in trauma-related disorder, um, intimate partner violence. He specializes in stress and anxiety, depression, and relationship conflict. Um, and so his um, his client focus are African-American and um, Latino uh, the Latino community or Latinx community. Um, and so if you are in Los Angeles, California, um, I will be sure to leave his information in the show notes. If you're looking for a therapist, um, who to help you with some challenges that you may be having anything from parent and child conflict to stress management, family conflict, behavioral issues, domestic violence, anxiety, trauma, PTSD, depression, 
any of those things sound like it's a challenge for you, or maybe it's someone that you know, um, check out Melvin Moore and let him know that Kia of the Fireflies Unite podcast sent you over. And again, his information will be in the show notes. So you all, that wraps up another episode of the Fireflies Unite podcast. If you're not following me on social media, please do that, you all. Um, I am at Fireflies Pod on all social media uh, platforms. That is Fireflies, this, the name of the podcast. And then it's Pod, short for podcast, P-O-D. And hey, I post a lot on, especially Instagram. I used to be really big on Twitter, but I haven't been as much on Twitter lately. But Twitter is actually uh, one of my favorite platforms. And so either way, you can check me out there. You can join the Fireflies Unite um, Healthy Minds Facebook group. I haven't been doing much over there lately. I'm really trying to figure out what I can do to build engagement over there. So if you have any ideas, feel free to let me know. Um, I think my goal that I want to still continue to work toward is going live once a month on in the group. So if that's something that you would like, feel free to let me know. And then also I want to encourage y'all, wherever you are listening to the podcast, but especially Apple Podcasts, please leave your reviews, y'all. That truly helps the podcast become more visible. And also the giveaway is still happening for the survey. So if you um, look look in the show notes and you will see the um, survey that I currently have going on in it, and it's really a way for me to gauge how I can help the podcast grow. What are the things that y'all like? What are the things y'all don't like and y'all want me to stop? How can I make this podcast better for you? And remember, there will be three winners and two people will have copies of my book and one person will have a $50 Amazon gift card. And so this will go on until the end of January. And so I really want to get as much data as I can from you all. So please, 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 please fill out that survey. Thank you so much for listening. You all have a blessed week and I will talk to you on next week. I hope that you obtain tools and resources from the Fireflies Unite podcast to help you manage your mental health. But please do not use it as a substitute for a relationship with a licensed therapist or psychiatrist. Let's continue the conversation by following me on Fireflies Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.